believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. Next week, I had the opportunity to travel to, to Waco, Texas uh, for CBF Day at Truett Theological Seminary, which is Baylor. I'm not going to be able to go on the trip. Um, but before Chip and Joanna Gaines rebranded Waco as the center of their cult-like following, um, that joke is for Caitlin Rogers, who loves Chip and Joanna uh, more than life itself. There was another cult that Waco was known for. Um, it was known as the Branch Davidians. Their leader was a 33-year-old man named David Koresh. He and his followers built what they called an army of God by stockpiling weapons in preparation for what they believed was the apocalypse. And on February the 28th, 1993, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided the Davidian compound, starting a 51-day siege. We know how the standoff ended. It ended in the death of those that were in there. Dozens of lives lost. But how did we get to that point? The Branch Davidians believe that God can appear in flesh as a man, and that man doesn't have to be a good person. And to question that man, who is supposed to be a representative of God, would be anathema, would be heresy. In other words, the devil is in your response to your doubt. David Koresh proclaimed to be the final prophet of God. He claimed that he was the son of God, the lamb. And when he wielded this power, Koresh's teachings included the practice of spiritual weddings, which enabled him to bed those that he chose to bed, not that were his wife. So he fathered dozens of children outside of his wife. And Koresh claims about himself and about God resulted in the death of 54 adults and 21 children. There's another man in history who made many bold claims about himself, and we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus made claims about himself that landed him a one-way ticket to the cross. The death of 12 followers, the persecution of others throughout the century, and the world's largest religion. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes eight self-proclaimed monikers about himself. Scholars have called this the I Am Statements of Jesus. And these statements give us a glimpse into who Jesus claimed to be and who his followers are as a result of who he claimed to be. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to examine these statements, discovering their deep theological meanings, and consider how we live in response to these statements. So take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 48. And before we get to this first I am statement of Jesus, we need to understand the framework of the Gospel of John. John stands alone from the other three Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of, you could lump them together in one particular genre of gospel, but John is so different from the rest. 
And maybe it could best be called the spiritual gospel, as scholars have called it. The opening lines of the gospel kind of give us a glimpse into this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, John portrays Jesus as this, in this cosmic drama of epic proportions, wrapped in this philosophical and poetic language. Instead of parables of Jesus, we get these long uh, philosophical and theological monologues from Jesus. Instead of following in the chronological order that Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow, uh, where Jesus ends his time in Jerusalem, John begins with Jesus in Jerusalem and then follows the rest of his story from there. So John is very different. Mark presents Jesus as a servant Messiah. Matthew presents Jesus as uh, the great rabbi calling disciples. Luke presents Jesus as a rebel. So how does John present Jesus? For this, let's dig into our text. John 8.48 The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You know this is a good start to a conversation. Verse 49. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. As they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, I glorify myself. My glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? In John's Gospel, Jesus begins in Jerusalem, as I said. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it ends in Jerusalem. But here at the beginning of John's Gospel, what we see in the first couple chapters is this constant clashing of Jesus with the religious leaders. Already in chapter 7 and chapter 8, they've tried to kill Jesus three times. It says three times in those Gospels that he riled the crowds enough that he thought they were going to kill him. John reports that Jesus' teachings were amazing the people and it was unsettling others. Then he's pitted against the religious leaders in this debate over the law of Moses when they drag this woman caught in adultery before Jesus and say, the law of Moses says, stone her, what do you say? And so Jesus is constantly clashing with the religious leaders. They try to discredit him. They try to discredit his heritage by saying, you're not even a Jew, you're a Samaritan, which was an insult in Jesus' day. And the obvious question that we see here is, is Jesus claiming to be more than 50 years old? Older than Abraham himself? In the back of their minds, they were probably thinking, is there some sort of ageless topical cream that you're putting on that is causing you to look a whole lot younger than you are? And again, they tried to rival his every word. In chapter 7, just ahead in verse 58, we're going to learn they try to kill him again. When I was traveling recently, I came across Steven Spielberg's classic. Daniel, can we turn this down a little bit? I'm hearing a bunch of buzz. Daniel, uh, Steven Spielberg's classic, Hook, um, which 
still breaks my heart to think about that Robin Williams is gone. Still completely shatters my heart to think about that. Hook tells the story of Peter Banning, who's a lawyer that is scared of everything. He's constantly trying to prevent any kind of accidents around his kids. Most of all, he's, he's scared of flying, which is a curious thing because Peter Banning is actually Peter Pan. He's just forgotten that he's Peter Pan. When he chose to leave Neverland for the love of his life, Peter slowly forgot who he was and that he could fly. So the character we are introduced to is not this boisterous Peter Pan that we all grew up, but this sad, busy, scared Peter Banning. He's stuck in his ways of what could possibly be. You see, as we encounter this text with Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the tension between what was and what is. Here they have been proclaiming the law of Moses. They've been teaching about how we pursue God to such righteousness. Yet they can't even understand that God is right in front of them. And they only can see the tension between what was and what is. We know this is tension because they argue his every word. They argue his every action. They think he's demon-possessed. They eventually try to kill him. And at the end of the Gospels, they do succeed in killing him. Jesus was showing the tension between what was and is. As a result, the people were uh, intimidated. They were riled. They were infuriated towards him. And if we're honest, Jesus should do the same to us. Jesus should intimidate us. He should rile us. He should infuriate us. That is to say, if we take serious his words and his actions... What Jesus claims about himself and what he's inviting us into is a threat to our everyday living. It's a threat to the way that we have shaped our lives, the way that we spend our money, the way that we use our time, the goals we set, the way that we view others, the way that we practice our faith. Jesus is a cattle prod to our lives, to our cultures, to the principalities of this world. Jesus shakes us awake and helps us to see that there is a better way of living than what we have settled to be and who we can become. What about Jesus' way rivals the way that you have designed your life? What about Jesus' teachings intimidate the way that you want to use yourself and your time? What about Jesus' invitation to follow his footsteps are a disinterest to you? In the previous chapters of John, we learn that Jesus literally disrupted the temple. He began to overturn money exchanging tables, to scatter the animals that were there for sacrifice. And I wonder if we're honest, what about our temple is Jesus disrupting? Jesus might disrupt our corrupt practices of loving ourselves more than we love God and our neighbors. He might dash the surplus of abundance that we live while so many people right outside of our door are living in suffering and just want a morsel of something. Jesus of Nazareth would utter a threat that corrupts our merging of our politics and our theology in a way that shapes that we only see this world through our political persuasion. That our ethics no longer shape the way that we see and interact with this world, but instead our willingness to allow a politician to shape the way that we see this world, the way that we view others, the way that we treat others. I believe within my soul Jesus would raise charges of our supposed faith in the way that we have such a corrupt socio-political discourse that we blindly support anybody who tells us what we want to hear. Who are the marginalized? Who are the outcasts? Who are the so-called unclean that Jesus calls us to serve but we see as untouchable, 
unworthy, not worth our time. As one author put it, the gospel of Jesus subverts the political politics of violence because the gospel is the politics of humility, service, forgiveness, and nonviolent love that embraces all people, but especially those that are enemy. Jesus is a threat to our little kingdoms, to the idols we've built up in this American dream. It is a kingdom that rivals the kingdom of Jesus. So we're just like the religious leaders, if we're honest. There is this tension between what was and what is, and if we're willing to follow Christ. The Jews were thinking to themselves, and say this out loud, what authority do you make these claims? I wonder if we're willing to see that we might say the same thing to Jesus. Who is Jesus to tell us what we do and how we live our lives? And the answer to that is in verse 58. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now that statement should be very familiar to you. And to raise the familiarity, let me tell you a story. The family of Israel moved to Egypt. If you remember correctly from the stories of Genesis, Joseph had saved the Egyptian empire from famine, And as a result, his entire family relocated to Egypt. And Exodus tells us that the people had multiplied. And soon a new pharaoh rose up who didn't remember Joseph and how Joseph had saved Egypt. But instead looked and saw the Israelites as a threat, thinking to himself, if they take up arms, they could overcome us. And so Exodus tells us that they put the Hebrew people under slavery. And there they mandated that they do work for them under forced labor. Not only that, but the Egyptian pharaoh takes it a step further by declaring that all Egyptian babies, all Hebrew babies, should be thrown into the Nile River and killed. But one particular mother, Hebrew mother, didn't want to see this happen, so she in faith put her child in a basket and sent her child down the Nile, where who of all people finds it but Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt. And, and this, this baby's sister had followed the basket. And soon she goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Let me find a mother who can nurse this child for you. And she does. It happens to be the baby's mother. And this boy is raised in the kingdom as if he was a prince. She names him Moses, which means to draw out. Soon Moses learns his identity. He goes and he sees that his people are suppressed. He sees a taskmaster that is awful towards the people. And so in secret he murders this man and tries to get away with it. But Pharaoh hears about it and Moses goes on the run. Many years pass and Moses is no longer the prince of Egypt. But he is simply a shepherd. And one day when he was out caring for his flock, he sees a bush that's burning. But the problem was, it wasn't burning up. Now, a lot of us would say Moses was, you know, munching on some ancient fungi of some kind, but here's this bush. And he's drawn to it, and soon this voice calls out to him. Moses. Moses. Here I am, Moses replies. Don't come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. And Moses hid his face in his hands because he was afraid to look at the glory of God. Then God said to Moses through this burning bush, I have heard the cries of my people. I am ready to save them. 
and you will be the one who leads them out of Egypt. If we remember the story correctly, what does Moses start doing? He starts fumbling over his words, saying, God, there's got to be somebody else. Someone else can take on this task. But God says to Moses, no, you are the one I am sending. And Moses asks this famous question that brings us to this phrase, who is it that I should say has sent me? And what does God respond? I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be the I am. Jesus is claiming to be the most sacred name of God, Yahweh. We need to recognize that when Jesus utters this statement, it would be the theological equivalent of lighting a match in a room full of dynamite. As Jesus stands in front of these religious leaders, he looks at them and says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am God. It's weird. Because in the other Gospels, Jesus seems to hide his identity. At other times when Jesus heals a disease or casts out sickness or gives someone with their blind, he gives them sight again and he tells them not to go and tell anyone else about what they have seen or heard. But in John's Gospel, Jesus is upfront and honest about who he says he is. Can we recognize and we embrace the significance of this moment? Jesus is not just some teacher. He's not just some prophet. He's not just some miracle worker. Jesus is saying that I am who I am. I am the God who created all such things. The Old Testament tells us that God, Ruah, that I am Ruah, spoke, breathed life into existence. Jesus is claiming to be that God. Therefore, the words that Jesus speaks matters. It's the same words that formed life into creation. It's the same words that parted the waters of the Red Sea. It's the same Ruah, life that breathed back into Israel as they came back to captivity. John says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is making a very provocative statement, a very provocative claim about himself. He's claiming to be the I am of God. Stop and consider that for just a second. My oldest child is super excited next year because uh, Disney will be releasing their live action adaptation of Aladdin. Jasmine is Madison's favorite. We don't know why that's her favorite, but that's her favorite uh, Disney princess. And I love the tension in the two main characters, the story between Aladdin and Jasmine. If you recall your childhood for just a second, or for some, your teenage years, or for others, your adult years. Um, But the story tells the story of a street rat named Aladdin who dreams of nothing but living in a palace where he no longer has to want for anything. And then you have Jasmine who no longer wants to live in the palace, who wants to be known as something else other than a princess where she is told what to do and who to marry every single day. And soon these characters collide where Jasmine runs in uh, to Aladdin and they dream of a different type of life. But soon we learn that the palace guards are there to arrest Aladdin and she tries to stop them but they think she's just a street rat herself until she takes off her hood and says what? By by authority of the princess. Stop. You can't arrest this man. But they don't listen to her command because they said that there's a higher power, a higher person who has made this charge where they have to take him to the palace. You see, as the religious leaders are standing before Jesus, they don't realize who they are in front of. In their mind, they see this heretic, this demon-possessed man who is just making these bold claims about himself. What they should be doing is as Jesus speaks, they should be listening and acting. But instead, they hear Jesus speak and they resist. 
They resist what he has to say. The I am, the one who spoke life into existence, is trying to tell them the new way, this new way that God is inviting them into, but instead they don't listen. And the question is, do we? As Jesus speaks into our life, do we listen? Or is Jesus just some other teacher, some other prophet, some other miracle worker that we like when miracles are spoken into our life? Or is Jesus the I am to us? Are we willing to listen and follow? Because what the religious leaders don't see in this moment, this is their burning bush moment. This is the moment where God is speaking out to them, inviting them into something new, and they respond with resistance. Jesus is inviting us. The I am is calling us to come and to follow him. But are we willing to follow? Will we answer the call? Verse 59 ends this way. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slumping away from the temple grounds. I've always wondered about this moment. Like, did Jesus have the smoke bombs that Batman throws down and all of a sudden, like, he disappears? They couldn't find him in that moment. Like, did he literally just, like, you know, put in his invisibility cloak and disappear? What happens in this moment? We really don't know. John is very vague. Stop and think about stoning for just a second. Like, I don't know who in history conceived this. <laughs> But it's the idea of literally throwing rocks at someone until they die. James, the brother of Jesus, will actually have a stone dropped on his head to kill him. This is their response to Jesus. The I am, Yahweh, the God who spoke life into existence, is there before him. And their response to it is to do what? To kill him. When faced with this burning bush moment... They choose to stone Jesus. This isn't anything new. We learn from the Exodus narrative that parallels this narrative that when Pharaoh and the Egyptian people are presented with this opportunity to change their way of thinking and living, to live in response to the God who also wants to invite them into a new way of life, it takes a snake getting thrown down, turning in, or staff thrown down to turn into a snake. It takes water turning into blood. It takes flies and locusts and lice and, and frogs. It takes a complete middle of the day to turn into darkness. And it doesn't change the Egyptian people's hearts. They would rather stone God than respond to God. Even Moses... Moses gives excuse after excuse, saying to God, God, I can't speak in front of people. I don't know how to. It's a lie. We know it's a lie because Moses is the one that helped form hundreds of the laws of Moses that are in the Old Testament. So this is the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. Do we want to stone or follow the I am? As I said before, Jesus is a threat to our way of life. Jesus is a threat to our security and our comfort. Jesus is a threat to the way that we shape our money and the way we use our money. Jesus is a threat to the way that we view other people, the way that we other other people and see them as enemy, as unworthy. Jesus is a threat to the way that we live in our own security instead of stepping out in faith to God. Jesus is a threat to the way that we're willing to prop ourselves up instead of humbling ourselves to serve others. Jesus is a threat to our way of life. 
So as we stand in the presence of the I am, as we stand in our burning bush moment day after day after day, how do we respond? Do we stone him? Or do we follow him? The I am, the God who spoke life into existence, is inviting you and inviting me. That God is inviting us not to live in the same way we've always lived our lives, not to view others in the same way we view others, not to see day after day, work after work, moment after moment in the same way. God is inviting us into new life, into a better way of living. It's not a life full of religious laws and regulations. It's not following all these commands that Moses wrote for us long ago. It's an invitation into life into grace and hope and compassion and peace and joy and self-control. And we stand with a stone in our hand and our choice is to either kill that prophet or to drop the stone and to follow him. The I am is inviting you. Will you follow him? Let's pray.